You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. All right, good morning. It is so good to be here this morning at Mission City Fellowship. I had the privilege last year at this same time to be here with you. So it's nice to be with you this morning and to see many familiar faces and also to see many new faces. I'm, even last year, y'all were in a different theater and now you're here because of growth. It's just so exciting to hear over the last few months from, from Rob and Phil, just the, the ways God is meeting you, the way God is using this church to reach this community. And so we just celebrate with you as a partner church and as the sending church. It brings us great joy to see how you are doing. Well, this morning I have the privilege of opening up God's Word and delivering the message I believe God has for us all this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, if you'll make your way to the book of Psalms, Psalm 89 is where we're going to be this morning. Psalm 89. In an online article entitled, Lord, Where is Your Faithfulness? Subtitled, How the Faithful Sing in Crisis. John Bloom wrote the following, I quote, In ancient rabbinic literature, the Psalms were referred to as the Telahim, which is Hebrew for praises. One of the most remarkable features of this sacred collection of praise songs is that at least one-third of them are laments. These are songs that passionately express some kind of emotional distress, such as grief, sorrow, confusion, anguish, penance, fear, depression, loneliness, or doubt. He goes on to say, this is remarkable because the presence of so many praise laments implies that God knew his people would frequently be called to worship Him in agonizing circumstances. The Holy Spirit inspired poets to craft praises that would provide us worshipful expressions of our diverse experiences of pain. And then he said this, If lament psalms are spirit-inspired praise songs for our painful seasons, we should look at them carefully because they teach us important lessons about the kinds of worship God receives. Mission City Fellowship, Psalm 89 is a psalm of lament. And it teaches us an important lesson on how to praise God when our circumstances may be tempting us to turn from Him. Psalm 89 teaches us how to celebrate God's faithfulness in times of spiritual crisis. So I want to begin with the question this morning. Have you ever gone through a season of suffering 
our hardship in which you were tempted to question God and His goodness. Have you ever gone through something in your life so difficult, so painful, that left you with so many questions that you were tempted to question God and His goodness? What about now? Maybe this is not a past tense question for you. Are you currently going through a season like this? Maybe you are personally experiencing a spiritual crisis this very morning. The fact that you're here was a battle. You had to wage war this morning to even get here. Because of things you're going through, you wonder, do I, do I really want to go and sing these songs about a God who is good? I, I, I believe it in some ways and in other ways. I, I struggle to see and, and know that that is true. Or maybe you are not currently going through a spiritual crisis, but someone you know and love is. Well, here's the good news. Psalm 89 teaches us how to celebrate God's faithfulness in times of spiritual crisis. So look at, let us look at this psalm together. And the first thing I want you to notice is the heading of this psalm. It says, a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. Psalm 89 was written, most likely, who is this guy, Ethan the Ezraite? He was probably one of the worship leaders of Israel. And this psalm was put to music and was to be sung by God's people. Psalm 89 can actually be divided into two parts. Part 1 is made up of verses 1 through 37. And the second half of this psalm consists of verses 38 through 52. And what you will see very soon is the difference between these two halves. What is said in the first half sounds radically different than what is said in the second half. These two halves are drastically different in tone. Therefore, they are very instructive for us. So now let us turn our attention to God's holy, inspired an authoritative word. I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 4. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Remember, this is a song. And this, this song begins with, with those, both the, the psalmist and the people who would come after singing this song, that they are going to sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. And with their mouth, they're going to declare the faithfulness of God. 
They're going to declare that God is faithful and that his faithful forever love marks him and that one of the greatest displays of his love is seen in his covenant that he made with David. Now we're going to come back to this concept in a moment, to this theme of the covenant God made with David. But before we return to this theme, the psalmist continues on and the song continues on, verses 5 through 8. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies could be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You hear what the psalm, this song is doing now? Not only are God's people celebrating God's faithfulness as they have seen through the covenants that he has made with them as his people, they're saying apart from that, if you were to pan out from earth and go to heaven, guess what you would hear being celebrated in heaven? There is no one like you, O Lord, because of your faithfulness. You are faithful. That is who you are. Are And God's people are celebrating his faithfulness. Verses 9 through 14. The song continues. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves arise, you still them. You crushed Rahab, which is Egypt, like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Do you hear what God's people are celebrating now? They, they are celebrating that God rules over everything as the righteous judge, as the one who demonstrates his faithfulness and love both in creation and in redemptive history. So God is not only a God who's made promises to his people, not only is God glorious because of who he is in heaven. God is glorious because of what he's done on earth, what he's done, what he does in creation. He just he displays his faithfulness and what God has done in redemptive history displays his faithfulness. And then all of a sudden in verses 15 through 18, God's people just began to to just take in the fact of who God is and what a blessing it is to be his People, listen to these words. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. 
For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. You see, God's people here are celebrating the privilege they have as His people to know Him and to praise Him. And now in verses 19 through 37, they're going to return to this theme we heard mentioned in verses 3 and 4. And from 19 to 37, God's people are now going to celebrate this covenant that God made with David. Listen to these words, 19 through 37. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love, I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever. And his throne as the days of the heaven. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rods and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the words that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon. It shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the sky. What we just read in Psalm 19 or verses 19 through 37 is the central theme of this psalm. Beginning in verse 19, the psalmist returns once again to this covenant God made with David and therefore his people. And he recounts what is called the Davidic covenant. And notice what it says in verse 20. God says, I have found David my servant. And with my holy oil, I have anointed him. You know what that means? That God said, this man, David, will be my anointed one, my lowercase Messiah. That's what a Messiah means, the anointed one. 
That this is going to be God's man. He is going to bless and use, and his throne will be used to bless and protect and, and save the people of God. Now, I don't know if one could find clearer, more emphatic language describing what God declared in his covenant with David than what we find here in Psalm 89, verses 19 through 37. And I don't think we could find stronger language than what we read in verses 34 through 37 about God's commitment to keep his promise. So not only does God tell you what this promise entails, that, that, that this man will be so mighty, his, his enemies will never defeat him. He will never be humbled. God will give him power and favor. And then, in, and then the psalm, this section, ends by saying, and I've made this promise, and I will not lie. I will keep my word. Now when we reflect on what we just read and heard in verses 19 through 37, it makes the next section that we're about to read stark and shocking. Because what's going to happen in verse 38 is the tone of this song is going to change. The bottom is about to fall out. Notice how different. You just heard verses 1 through 37. Now, listen to verses 38 through 52. All of a sudden, the tone changes. Listen to verses 38 through 45. But now, you have cast off and have rejected you are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of the sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and has cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth and you have covered him with shame. Think about those words in verses 38 through 45. Are they not the opposite of what we just read in verses 19 through 37? Everything God said he was going to do. Now the people of God in the same song say you failed to do any of it. Everything you've said you were going to do, the opposite has happened. Do you hear the, the anguish being expressed in this psalm? Remember, this is a song that was to be sung by God's people. And if this is a song, listen, Psalm 89 is no sappy heartbreak ballad. Psalm 89 is the blues. 
This is a, a song with, with, with pain, and we're to feel this pain. This psalm is full of raw emotion, and you can hear it. You can hear it in the refrain that captures the anguish of God's people. Listen to what God's people are saying in this psalm. God, you appear to have broken your promises. Now that raises a major question. What is this song seeking to do? Is the psalmist calling the integrity of God into question? And not only is the psalmist calling God's integrity into question, remember, this psalm was written so that the people of God could sing this song. Is he calling on the people of God to question the goodness and the faithfulness of God? Is this song mocking and irreverent? Could you imagine this morning singing this song? You would be great with it for the first 37 verses. But then you get to 38 through 45. And you're thinking, we should stop singing these words. I hope the sound system breaks. We shouldn't sing words like these. Is, is this song irreverent is it mocking is it questioning God and the answer is no listen to how this song ends verses 46 through 52 how long O Lord will you hide yourself forever how Long will your wrath burn like fire. Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mocked, O Lord, with which they mocked the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Notice how this song ends. Instead of turning from the Lord, God's people turn to the Lord in song and in prayer. Remember, they say, remember your words, your promises, the covenant you made. Remember for the sake of your people. They're saying, Lord, what we are experiencing appears to contradict your character and your covenant. But we know who you are. So, Lord, would you, would you remember your promises? And then notice how this psalm ends. Verse 52. It ends in praise. It ends in doxology. That's how this psalm 
ends. Now go back to verses 1 through 4 and remember how this psalm began. We see how it ends with praise. Well, that's how this psalm began. And pay careful attention to to what the psalmist is praising God for. Now that we've heard the whole psalm, think about how this psalm began. The people of God are celebrating his faithfulness and his steadfast love. And both of these characteristics, his faithfulness and his steadfast love, are most clearly seen where, according to this psalm, in his covenant with God. David, the very covenant they are saying you have failed to keep or at least appears to be that way. This is really astounding when you read verses 1 through 4 and you consider how this psalm is centered around the apparent failure by God to keep his promise to David. See, it's imperative that we not divorce the first half of this psalm from the second half of this psalm. See, when we read this psalm in its entirety and we, we, we wrestle with the first half in light of the second half, we observe valuable truths that are meant to help us trust the Lord And to worship the Lord when our circumstances seem to be saying opposite of what we know to be true about God. See, this this psalm was placed in Holy Scripture for our good. It wasn't just for the people of of Israel a long time ago. It, It is for us today. There are valuable lessons God wants us to teach, God wants to teach us. Through this psalm, especially when we are walking through times of spiritual crisis. I just want to point out too this morning. That I hope that by seeing this, the Lord will strengthen your faith. Here's the first lesson. Lament is the language of hope. That's the first lesson we Learn from Psalm 89. Remember, Psalm 89 is a psalm of lament. And lament is the language of hope. Friends, I believe all of us need to be better acquainted with the language of lament when reading our Bibles, especially when reading the Psalms. I don't think... That most of us, myself included, for the longest time, were familiar with the language of lament in Scripture. As you heard a minute ago, at the beginning of this message, out of the 150 psalms, a third of praise songs are laments. So it does us good to actually pay attention and to study and to get acquainted with laments in Scripture. See, words of lament are prominent in the Psalms, not only because they give voice to the heartache of God's people, but but words of lament fill the Psalms not only because of the voice they give to heartache, because they are the language of hope. They are the language of hope. And Psalm 89 is a wonderful example of how lament can create hope during times of crisis. 
Now, if you're wondering this morning, how can lament produce hope? Well, there are, after studying and reflecting upon laments in Scripture, there are three essential elements in biblical laments. Without these three working together, hope will not be produced. So laments are made up of three elements. And when these three elements are, are, are present and working together, lament becomes the language of hope. So what are these three elements? Here is what is present in the laments in Scripture, and therefore they must be present in our expressions to God in times of crisis. Here are the three. Honesty, doxology, and longing. See, laments are made up of all three of these. Honesty, doxology, and longing. Let me take each one of those for just a moment. Let's take honesty first. Listen, in times of suffering, we must speak honestly to the Lord about our hardships and our heart aches. God wants us to speak to Him with honesty. He wants us to come before Him and bring the, 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 the troubles that are weighing down our soul. He invites us to bring our hardships and our heartache. Look back at Psalm 89. God's people didn't just sing of His promises in verses 1 through 18. They also sang of their disappointments and their doubts in verses 38 through 45. These aren't two separate psalms. We can sing of the greatness of God and we can turn around and we can express our disappointments and our doubts and our hardships and our heartaches to God. And he invites us to do that. But listen, honesty by itself may make us feel better for a time. But in the end, if all we do is think lament is just me getting everything off my chest, it will not produce hope. That's why honesty must lead to doxology. What is doxology? Well, in Scripture, both the Old and New Testament, doxology is when theological truth gets expressed in the form of praise. That's what a doxology is. It's me saying something very specific about God, a truth about God, but I'm not just saying it simply in a doctrinal way just to say, yeah, that's true. I'm saying it because my heart has grabbed onto it and, and I am expressing it in praise to God. You are faithful. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Those things are true, but I'm not just saying them. I'm believing them. I'm rejoicing in them. And, and doxology must be present in our laments. As much as we should pay attention to the honesty being expressed in verses 38 through 45, we must not overlook the doxology being expressed in verses 1 through 18 and in verse 52. The psalm begins... With doxology, it ends in doxology. And as much as we should pay attention to these two, we, 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 we cannot ignore how they work together. 
Notice the doxology we, we discover here in Psalm 89. What is God being praised for in this psalm? For being transcendent, sovereign, powerful, holy, righteous, just, loving, and most importantly, God in these first 18 verses is being praised for being faithful. He is a promise-keeping God. Now, I don't know about you, but I must admit, it's far easier to do one or the other, but it feels almost impossible to do both simultaneously. To be able to come to God and be honest, but also to come to God and not let my pain and my problems tell me who He is but let God tell me who he is and I respond. And to do both of those can, can be so difficult. This is why the language of lament is so important for us to study in the scriptures. Because lament beckons us to do both. It's like we have to have a foot in, on both sides. We must be honest and we must express our praise to God not based on what we believe to be true or how we feel about God but what God has revealed to us. And that's a battle, isn't it? That's a struggle. Like I said, it's easier to do one than the other. Can you relate? It's easy to come to God in times of crisis and to pour out in, in, in honesty, God, you seem to be like this. You seem to have forgotten me. You seem to not be good in what you've brought into my life. You don't seem to be powerful because these problems I've been praying about for so long, you've not answered. It, it's either because you don't care or you can't do anything about it. And we pour out. Our, our, our concerns and our heartache to the Lord. Or we, we are far more comfortable thinking, well, I, I believe God is powerful and good and He's sovereign. Therefore, if I'm walking through hardships, it, it, it would be irreverent to, to do anything. But when, when, when people talk to me of, about my cancer diagnosis or about my problem in my family, for me to say anything else is, oh, oh no, God, God's good, God's good. Like if I was to say, oh man, God is good, but man, I'm struggling. I don't know what God's up to. I'm worn. I'm tired. I'm weary. My faith is frail. See, we know how to do one or the other. We know how to just get it all off of our chest or we know how or we think we're called to be stoic. If we believe God is good and he's right and he's just and he's sovereign, we're just to put on a straight face. And then if anybody asks how we're doing, oh, God, God's good. But the Psalms, especially the Psalms of lament, teach us how to express all that's going on in us in a right way. But listen, there's one more essential element to lament that must not be ignored or else we will not find hope in crisis. What is that final element? Longing. Longing. Verses, 50, verses 46 through 51 of Psalm 89 are example of 
longing. In many ways, these words tie the whole song together. See, lament is an expression of longing. That's what lament is. Lament is not just honesty, and it's not just doxology. Lament is is an expression of longing. And friends, that's where hope is found. Hope is found there. You see, to live with one foot on the side of doxology, and at the same time, another foot in the world of, 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 of honesty, to have honesty and doxology, it can leave us feeling torn and divided. That's where longing comes in. Longing gives our lament direction. Unless we are expect, unless we, both honesty and doxology are, are met with longing, we, we will not feel like hope is rising in our heart. If anything, we will feel torn, divided. But longing gives a sense of purpose to our lament. That's what longing does. It gives our, our lament a sense of direction. You see, hope is found. Listen, hope is found when longing gets expressed through a torrent of tears that flow from the river of robust faith. Can I say that again? Hope is found when longing gets expressed through a torrent of tears flowing from the river of robust faith. See, we're not just simply shedding tears because of our sorrows and our pain. We're shedding tears because we know who our God is and we know His promises are true and we long to see those promises fulfilled. That's that's why we need to, to know more about lament. We need to take time studying lament. We need to learn to incorporate lament into our times of prayer, into our devotional life, and even into our singing. We need to have songs that express the hardship and the heartache of God's people, but, but they do so in a way that it still says, God, this is true of you. And it produces hope in us. So that's the first lesson we learn from Psalms like Psalm 89. But there's a second lesson. Lesson number two. We see the suffering servant and the steadfast love of God in laments. That's why we need to study the laments of Scripture. Places like Psalm 89, in this psalm, we see the suffering servant and the steadfast love of God on display. One of the precious reminders we glean from Psalm 89 is that the promises of God do not exempt us from experiencing suffering in this world. It's one of the important things about studying the laments that serve us. See, if the Bible said, if you believe in in Jesus, if you follow after him, 
You will never experience pain or hardship or trouble. Then when that comes, wouldn't we be devastated? Because we, we've been told something and, and what we're experiencing is opposite. But the Bible never tells us that. The Bible never says that if you believe and you trust that God in His goodness will protect you and keep you from all trouble and pain. If anything, the Scriptures show us time and time again, God's people have experienced suffering in this world. Actually, God's way of redeeming the world was through a suffering servant. Not only are we not exempt from suffering, God used the greatest form of suffering to save the world. Now think about Psalm 89 for just a moment. Can you see why many in Israel would have believed that the promises that God made regarding the Messiah, the anointed one, David? If, if you hear once again verses 19 through 37, how else would you interpret what God said. It, it must mean that your anointed would never experience suffering or hardship. I mean, if you just take 19 through 7, 37 literally, wouldn't you be surprised all of a sudden when, when, the, when the line of David started experiencing defeat and hardship and you're, you're wondering, is the king even going to remain on the throne and has the kingdom completely just been wiped out after the exile. You can imagine how God's people would have wrestled with that question. You see, Israel struggled to understand how the Davidic covenant or how the Davidic king could experience rejection and curse and judgment. They wrestled with that. How, 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 Lord, could, could David, this one you made all these promises to, how could he be rejected? How could he experience curse? How could he experience judgment? But we look ahead to who David pointed to. And isn't this the story of Jesus, David's greater son and the Savior of the world? Do, do you see how Jesus is, is on display here in Psalm 89. So how, how does seeing Jesus as the suffering servant or as the suffering Messiah of Psalm 89, how does that change the way we experience suffering? How can Christ create hope during times of crisis? Well, first of all, the greatest reason we should see the face of Jesus in Psalm 89 has to do with the cause of the spiritual crisis of Psalm 89. What caused this spiritual crisis in Psalm 89? Well, if you pay careful attention, it's apparent. The sin of God's people was the cause of their spiritual crisis. God hadn't failed to keep His promises. They had broken this covenant God made with them time and time and time and time again. And to them, God appeared to have rejected them 
and shown them nothing but judgment. But in reality, he was treating them better than they deserved. How so? Because Psalm 89 is a messianic psalm. It points beyond David. It points beyond the Davidic covenant to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of David, took the punishment His people deserved. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins. He died so that we could live. He experienced the grave and overcame the grave so that we would not live in fear of the grave. This, this is where the steadfast love of God is on display. Listen, this is where hope is found. Our hope is not found in our circumstances, but in the cross of Christ. This is where our hope is found. Listen to these words from pastor and author Ligon Duncan. Jesus experienced Psalm 89, verses 38 through 45. Later today, go back and read Psalm 89, 38 through 45, and tell me, does that not sound like all that the Savior experienced? Jesus experienced Psalm 89, 38 through 45. And by that suffering, Jesus restored the throne of David and saved the people of God. In God's mysterious providence, He delivered on His promises at the time they seemed in greatest peril. Scripture attests repeatedly that God shows Himself strong when circumstances seem most dire. In redemption, death always precedes resurrection. The cross always comes before the crown. And then he writes this. Whatever you fear may cause God's promises to fail will likely be the very thing he uses to fulfill them. Isn't that what we see in Jesus? Not only... Did the coming of Christ show us that God has not treated us as we deserve? But that God uses suffering in ways to accomplish His purposes. In ways that we could have never imagined. And our suffering is not wasted because of that. Whatever we may fear is causing God's promises to fail will most likely be the very thing he, he uses to fulfill them. Brothers and sisters, I pray that this morning, Psalm 89 has shown us the importance of lament, a neglected topic of our study and our reflection. Psalm 89, I pray, has taught us how to lament. And I do pray that this morning, Psalm 89 has been an invitation from God to you to lament. 
I pray that when you read passages like Psalm 89, you realize that behind the human authors is God Himself. And God placed Psalm 89 in Holy Scriptures, not only to teach us how to lament, but to invite us to lament. I do hope you realize you don't have to choose between praising God for His faithfulness and pouring out your sorrows and trouble before Him. We have a God who desires that we do both. He wants our worship. He wants our praise. But He's not saying, bring your praise in the form of tell me all the things that are true and good of me, but, but, but don't bring your troubles. Don't bring your sorrows. No, we have a God who invites us to share honestly our heartaches and our hardships. But He calls us to do it under the shadow of the cross. That's my greatest prayer. Is that Psalm 89, as we look at it and we reflect on it, that Psalm 89 changes our perspective about our circumstances by pointing us to Jesus and the cross on which He died. When we see that Psalm 89 pointed beyond the people of God at this time, pointed beyond Israel and pointed to a suffering Savior, then we should be compelled as we go before God not to forget the suffering Savior. Because when we look at the cross and what God did on our behalf, that He hasn't treated us as we deserve, it changes our perspective, doesn't it not? So we need Psalm 89 and Psalms like this so that when we go through a spiritual crisis, we still know how to sing of His faithfulness. Let's pray.